Buck the Police, testing, 112. Good everyone, welcome to the Forbidden Technique podcast on the Fight Side Podcast Network with me, your host Silas Martin, my co-host as always, Christian Reynolds. And ooh-wee, what a weekend of fights that was. A one championship absolutely delivered, so that's just what we're going to be dedicating the first half of this week's episode to because uh, UFC was some B-League shit this week. Uh, there was some stuff worth mentioning, but... Uh, one championship for all of its weird shadiness. Uh, when they put some good cards together, they they genuinely deliver on some of the best events I've ever seen in combat sports. So let's get right into it. Angela Lee defends her title by second round submission against Stamp Fairtex. I thought Stamp made a good account of herself, <clears throat> just considering how long she's been training in MMA and the experience difference her coming from a Muay Thai background and women's Muay Thai not being that developed as it is. And uh, she fucked Angela Lee up pretty bad in the first round with a, like a left hook to the body as Angela Lee was closing distance. Had Angela Lee clearly very hurt. Chased her with a blitz all the way across the cage. But, you know, in these kind of matchups, the striker trying to finish the grappler always has to be incredibly accurate and disciplined because uh, once it gets to a scramble, it just almost always gives the opportunity to the grappler to uh, just get their shit back together. I mean, look at Charles Oliveira's last two fights. So, uh, yeah, Stamp just wasn't able to uh, maintain the success. And Angela Lee took over, and particularly in the second round, it was just more and more downhill. Angela Lee had Stamp in some uh, really deep submission attempts, like a triangle even a twister that she ended up using to secure a mount and uh, finish with a rear naked choke as Stamp tried to turn out of it. Yeah, good fight. Solid performance. What did you think, Christian? I thought it was really cool. I, I th- kind of want to mention, firstly, that this was not an exception to the rule of this card, which was to have trash refereeing. There was a part where Stam Fairtex had hurt Angela Lee, and in my opinion... Had things gone differently and the ref was not standing in a way that was blocking Stamp from cutting off her opponent, Stamp might have been able to fuck Angela Lee up, but Angela Lee stepped out to the side, kind of got a takedown, mostly because the ref just gave her room. Uh, it was one of many times in the card that the ref kind of fucked up a fight, uh, at least fucked up a stoppage. There was some late stoppages on the card. There was some weird yellow cards given. And then there was also just the ref being too close and interrupting the action in strange ways. But aside from that, it was a great performance by both, I think. Uh, Stamp showed her inexperience in grappling situations, of course, but that's kind of to be expected. And Angela Lee showed her, on the other side, showed her experience. And uh, whether to storm early, got fucked up really badly to body shots, which she's traditionally known to get fucked up by. And then she just she's just tough enough to make it to the next round and... Once she got to the grappling, it was pretty much all Angela. Stamp was completely on the defensive the entire time. Stamp before the fight was saying things like, Angela Lee's my idol, she's my hero. But that's not the stuff you want to be hearing from someone that should be a peer with someone. 
So it, it seemed like a bit of you know mental immaturity on Stamps' part, uh, at least as a fighter, and Angel Lee just knowing how to handle that matchup. Because if you can only really strike with Angel Lee, she's gonna win. Like she'll get the takedown eventually. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of Muay Thai fighters and inexperience in grappling, leading to a second round rear naked choke submission. <laughs> uh, Rod Tang versus DJ was uh, every bit as predictable as it possibly could have been, but somehow was still fun and uh, was kind of just a genius performance from Demetrius Johnson. Like, he knew exactly what he needed to do, but um, uh, to Rod Tang's credit, so did he. He came out hard in the first round, landed some big shots on DJ, which is pressuring from the first bell in a way that we've never seen because he was just like, look, I don't want to have to do this MMA shit, I got to knock him out in the first round. But uh, DJ held his own, got into some exchanges, landed some shots on Rod Tang that would have knocked out like most people who aren't Rod Tang and uh, was really competitive in the clinch with Rod Tang. Even though Rod Tang, it's not really his thing to be a clincher. You don't get to his level in Muay Thai if you're not elite as a clinch fighter. And DJ absolutely handled him in that phase. And... um once he was able to get out of that first round and it got to MMA rules, it was absolutely hilarious how immediately the dynamic shifted where Rod Tang was southpaw and on the back foot doing bouncy karate shit and just like teeping the lead leg. Yeah, he was on his full Conor McGregor shit. He, he must have watched an MMA fight and was like, oh, just go southpaw and hand fight and they like sidekick the knee. That's the key. That's MMA in a nutshell. And it was kind of working for a minute. <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of just his best way of trying to be negative as fuck to get through the MMA round so he could get back to a second round of Muay Thai and try and knock DJ out. Um, But DJ just read him like a children's book and the first time he threw a committed punch, uh, DJ ducked under for a reactive shot, immediately got round to the back and, you know, it, it was it was inevitable from there. There was absolutely no way within the space of time that Rod Tang's been training grappling that he was going to know how to get out of that position. And any kind of attempt he made to fight the hands just allowed DJ to sink it in deeper. Of course, Rod Tang's a fucking animal, so he didn't tap. <laughs> yeah, and there was about 0.5 seconds of the the second round that Rod Tang wasn't in Southpaw, and it was him getting taken down because he he like did a left hook to, and shifted, and then immediately DJ ducked under and took his back. So DJ did everything that really anyone before the fight that was doing analysis for it said that he should do because DJ's the fucking goat. So <laughs> yeah, if anything, I was just disappointed in how normal DJ's submission selection was. It was just a rear naked choke. I mean, I guess he only had three minutes. He wanted to get the job done, but you could have could have gone for something funnier than that. Yeah, I was I was a little disappointed to not see an inverted twister, but just a normal RNC is is still it's it's sufficient. It's also fun to see with a guy who has as short of reach as DJ to get an RNC because he he could not get his hand behind Rotting's head because of like the like he was just wrapped fully around. He had to go palm to palm for a part just to like actually get it sunk in. So yeah, I assume they just go back to their regular lives after this. This fight is of no consequence. Rod Tang will go back to uh, being up European cans in meme fights and then occasionally having actual elite stadium fights outside of one. 
and uh, you know, DJ could keep doing his thing. Probably just wants to go home and uh, stream some Elden Ring. I don't know. Yeah, and uh, you know, hopefully a little bit down the line, we'll get uh, Rod Tang versus DJ. And it'll be an MMA and Rod Tang will be more experienced and then he will lose the exact same way. Well, you, you think this is going to light a fire under Rod Tang? He's like, nah, I'm, i got to get good at MMA now. i got, I got to get that one back. Yeah, like I think if Stamp hadn't been subbed early in her MMA career that she would have just stayed with Muay Thai. So I'm hoping that Rod Tang gets that same competitive fire in him and then is like, oh, I'm going to grind the next like five years and then... He just gets RNC'd by DJ in the second round again. No, I think he's going to be like, yo, that was fucking stupid. I'm going back to Muay Thai, fuck that noise. That is the logical thing to do in this scenario. It definitely is. Uh, Adriano and Marias submitted Yu Wakamatsu. fight kind of sucked. They were just like really tentative and both getting passivity warnings from the ref. And then Yu Wakamatsu shot into a guillotine. Uh, Shinya Aoki versus... Yoshihiro Akiyama, who um, on the preview podcast was one of many details that I just completely overlooked because there was so much stuff we were trying to get to on this card that Yoshihiro Akiyama is none other than the man, the myth, the legend, Sexyama. Yeah, and anyone who is watching that thinks that we don't know who Sexyama is, we're not that young. You know, we know who Sexyama is. We just we just overlooked a little bit on the card. We also forgot on the UFC event that Matt Brown was fighting, so we just didn't cover that fight. We definitely would have. Just completely forgot that Matt Brown was fighting. Didn't even talk about it. Yeah, we're not perfect, but, you know, we do our best to get over it. And, uh, holy shit, what, what a turnaround for Sexyama. Uh, Shinya Aoki had his, his back within like 30 seconds of the first round and we're just like oh okay this is happening that's anticlimactic you know they really built this fight up with all the beef and stuff these, these guys don't like each other and it's like oh it's gonna be a, a, a tepid submission finish within like a minute and a half well um Aoki couldn't finish the choke but was just j- just remained there uh backpacking sexy arm in a body triangle for like the whole round and towards the end of the round, I'm like, okay, th- this round wasn't good for Sexy Yama, but like, I think Aoki's legs are kind of fucked. That's a really long time to just hold your own weight in a body triangle. Um, And yeah, he was kind of just done in round two. He just immediately got backed up into the cage and got killed. And um, yeah, I mean, it was dope. <laughs> the ref kind of fucked up. He was just not responding and didn't want to quit, but like ate a nasty knee on the ground and was just taking unnecessary shots. But uh, I mean, f- let's go Sexyama. Yeah, it was pretty sick. Sexyama's main adjustment in the second round was anytime his arm was even remotely free or arguably free to be striking, he would just start smacking him. So there's a part where Aoki was holding on to the leg trying to drive him to the fence and Sexyama just went pop, 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 pop and just started smacking him in the face and it, it kind of worked to deter the takedown and then any other situation where uh, he just had a hand free, he would just start punching him and then towards the finishing sequence, it was a weird combination of Aoki like being too tough to get knocked out and not wanting to quit but also getting like buzzed constantly. Well, Sexyama was like not hitting hard enough to actually put him unconscious, but still hitting hard enough to where the ref should have stopped it like maybe 10 strikes sooner. So it, it was a very, it was very fun. And it's always great to see guys that actually dislike each other fight like it, because that's just how Aoki fights. Like he'll backpack like, like anyone. 
And then uh, in the next one, man, these two fights next to each other was a really weird like study in aging in combat sports because to look at a sexy armor and John Wayne Parr next to each other and be like, oh, yeah, these guys are the same age. I was like, holy shit. John Wayne Parr versus Edward Foliang. John Wayne Parr, of course, an absolute legend, beloved by everyone in the kickboxing community. And he is absolutely shot to shit and should be not be getting sanctioned to fight. He he is in that like like Cain Velasquez territory where his body is just completely failing him. And um like to the point where um his hips are so shot where he has to jog into range because he can't move forward more than like two centimeters at a time while staying in his stance. And you know what? He still fucking put it on Edward Foliang towards the end of this fight. He got dropped early and weathered a storm and just, as the fight went on, showed that he's still a crafty dog and that the mind is willing even if the body isn't there anymore. Started backing Foliang up and finding the left hook. Got a big flurry towards the cage off. And for one fleeting moment, the gunslinger was back, but it, 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 it wasn't enough. Yeah, Parr enjoyed like a slight size advantage, it looked like, which probably saved him from getting knocked out. But it was it was sad to watch in, in more regards than it was fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, John Wayne, he laid down his gloves in the octagon after this. I really hope this retirement sticks because he should just be focusing on his coaching at this point. He's had an amazing storied career got some amazing wins and shouldn't just be tarnishing it with just these like really unfortunate performances at a point in his career where he just can't keep up anymore. But you know what? If this is the fight he went out on, you know, he was always one of those guys who was just like, uh, win or lose, as long as I fought my heart out and showed that I have a warrior spirit, I'm happy. And you can never say he did anything less than that. So then opening this main card, uh, Superbon uh, avenged his loss to Marat Gregorian in kind of exactly the way that you would have expected him to and the way that you would generally expect him to win had you not seen him get uh, absolutely slept in like 30 seconds in their first fight. But uh, yeah, he just com- kind of completely out- outclassed Gregorian for five rounds. Basically didn't allow any pocket exchanges with Gregorian at all. Teeped him up, uh, was constantly pivoting out, like using his long guard and slipping under shots and then taking angles to like retake the center, then just stranding Gregorian at kicking range where Murat just had absolutely nothing for Superbon. And he could just pick off Gregorian's kicks and just freely blast off like lead teeps and switch kicks all day. It was a great performance, exactly what you want to see. And uh, just another fight that's cementing him as one of the pound-for-pound top guys in the sport right now with uh, wins over Sitachai. Giorgio Petrosian and Marat Gregorian back to back. I mean, what a performance. Yeah, it was pretty much what we were expecting. But anytime you watch a fight between two guys where one guy has won by knockout real early before, you have to wonder in the pre fight, okay, maybe this guy just has his number, even though it's kind of a rough matchup. Like maybe he's just going to land the knockout shot at some point, no matter what. But that is not the case. Superbond kind of just got caught in the first fight. And it was a while ago. You know, Superbond's definitely made improvements since then. Yeah, he was an elite fighter back then, but now he's making a solid case for being the pound-for-pound number one. And then uh, we had Nongo coming through for the old guys. Uh, just absolutely outclassed Felipe Lobo. 
I don't like to say stuff, particularly when I'm trying to analyze fights, like, uh, you know, there's just levels to this shit. But yeah, there kind of just was. Felipe Loba barely landed clean on Nongo. He just dictated all of the exchanges with his jab and the feints that he was able to push Lobo back with, use it to set up big offense, huge kicks as Lobo was exiting. Really just did, didn't allow uh, Lobo to get any of his aggressive counter game going. Uh, more and more Lobo realized that he just had to jab with Nongo. And then in the finishing sequence, just, just a, a, a beautiful sequence where Nongo... Uh, Trades a jab with Lobo where Nongo kind of comes off worse in the exchange just because Lobo's got the longer arms and you know th- that was the one strike that he was able to have some success with because of that. But then it seems like because Lobo thinks that he's caught onto something that he can have some success with. So Nongo uh, feints a jab to to draw out Lobo's and then just like slips it and comes back with an absolutely filthy uppercut which just folded Lobo in half. That was the fight over. It was sick. Yeah, it was some classic Nongo. Always happy to see that. In the pre-fight, we were trying to give Lobo some credit, but we both kind of knew that it was going to be Nongo fucking him up. Yeah, this was one where I I wasn't so much interested in the matchup so much as uh, it's just great to get an opportunity to still see Nongo performing at his best. Just a, a, another all-time great who's... He's not still out there against elite competition, but there's kind of no reason for him to be. And it's just a pleasure to still get to see him perform. Yeah, it's always great seeing Nongo. And if you're watching a fight with him, he's almost always trying to fucking kill someone. Like He does not fight tentatively. He goes for the kill if you're worse than him. Yeah, and he'll not just like chill and win a decision if he's easily beating someone. He's going to go for a sickening knockout. You gotta love the guy. And then uh, maybe the best fight on the card, Capitan Pechi and D versus Hiroki Akimoto. Uh, Hiroki Akimoto, uh, just a, a real dark horse for kickboxing right now. Because when I, when I saw his first couple of fights in one championship, I was kind of like, just surprised that there's this guy who's clearly coming off the J-Kick scene who's really good. And I'm like, but why isn't he? Why isn't he in K1? Why isn't he in Rise? It's, you just don't see many of these guys coming over to one championship and I'm not sure why. And it turns out apparently he's just been like exiled from the J-Kick scene for like gym politics. And I don't really understand all of that. Uh, but this was an absolutely fantastic performance by him. He really just didn't allow himself to be pressured by Capitan at all. Just constantly standing his ground by uh, countering any of the throwaway shots that Capitan wanted to put out there to try and uh, push Akamoto back. You know, nullifying... St- nullifying stuff in the clinch and then whenever Capitan was moving backwards himself just punishing with hard low kicks he absolutely toasted Capitan's legs in this fight Uh, this was uh, another fight which fits into the theme of absolutely dog shit refing Uh, something that we see a good bit uh, whenever you see uh, whenever you see a tie coming over from traditional Muay Thai into kickboxing rules is that whenever the fighters end up clinching up, which is an inevitable thing that happens in fights, uh, the ref will almost always just blame the tie and assume that he's clinching. Um, The Capitan was doing some uh, both defensive and offensive clinching in this fight, but like so was Hiroki, 
And it was getting to the point where the ref was giving him warnings for framing, which is creating space. That is the opposite of clinching. Yeah, he wasn't even like getting a collar tie and then, you know, like framing on with the shoulder. He was he was actually trying to create space to make exchanges, and then he he would like get his hand parried away, and he'd have to take an up a, an underhook, or else he'd get uppercutted, or like get countered. So like Capitan was doing his best to not clinch, but the ref kind of like if you're colliding with someone constantly in kickboxing, you're gonna clinch with them, and if you don't take an underhook, you're gonna get oh, fucking punched or like hit. Sometimes you just have to do that. That's just the nature of kickboxing. You're gonna clinch up a little bit. Yeah, and it really fucked Capitan over because there were points where he was just getting absolutely blasted and was just like, well, what do I do? <laughs> I can't clinch up. He's like, I can't clinch or stop my opponent from hitting me. But I also can't frame <laughs> because the ref thinks that's clinching and, and I'll get points taken. So we would just have to throw back and then Akimoto would start clinching and then the ref would be like, Capitan, stop clinching. <laughs> So it was rough for him, but uh, and it was really just a shame that that had to overshadow what was an absolutely fantastic performance by Akimoto. Uh, but but either way, a great fight where like both guys made great accounts of, them, of of themselves. Akimoto cements himself as just one of the best talents in kickboxing in one championship right now. You know, in a division that one are consistently adding to uh, and getting a bunch of interesting talent from you know all of the different kickboxing scenes around Asia, and uh, Capitan. He should maybe just go down in weight. I'm not sure if he just like hates cutting weight or if he just thinks it's cool to be tiny and beat the shit out of huge people, but he is remarkably outsized by almost everyone he's fighting in one championship. Yeah, and Akimoto himself isn't a large guy for the division, but he did have like a noticeable size advantage here. Yeah, really uh, really helped with um, not allowing himself to be pressured and being able to stand his ground. And Yeah, you could probably count on one hand the amount of times that Akimoto's back even got close to touching the fence. So then a bunch of MMA happened. Who cares? Um, Chingas Alizov versus Sitachai. This was another absolutely fantastic performance. Uh, one where it, it was difficult to see how Chingas was going to pull it off given how their first fight went and just how consistent Sitachai has been throughout his entire career. Of course, in the first fight, you know, Sitachai just kept a very defensively tight while Chingas Alizov was you know, trying to do his thing of setting up big flashy combinations to find counters deeper into exchanges. But Sitachai would generally just be shutting down things in the first layer and not allowing Chingas Alazov to build his offense. Whereas in this fight, uh, Chingas Alazov was um, a lot more content to like just play the outfighter and just uh, kind of just pot shot with single long range strikes. He really utilized his speed advantage and just never allowed Sitachai to settle into a rhythm. Um, Sitachai, he's a real study in mastery of basics and fundamentals, and like how far you can go with just a few simple tools and a pared-down game that, that you can apply just an immense amount of uh, strategic flexibility to. But there's still room with that kind of style to just be overwhelmed by an unorthodox flashy guy who can constantly change angles, and give you different looks and just overwhelm uh, the defensive systems of someone like Sitachai. And he bought a fight out of Sitachai that I've almost never seen in kickboxing. And I kind of alluded to this last week when I said that it's easy to underrate about such a consummate professional technician that Sitachai is a fucking hard cunt and he will throw down when he needs to. 
and he will come forward and make exchanges even with you know the the bigger puncher with the quicker hands and he took some shots in this fight and you know never stopped coming forward it was still a close and competitive fight but man what a performance from Chingas Alazov and um just really great that we've ended up getting an awesome new matchup uh, out of this, which should be Chingiz Alizov versus Superbon. Yeah, I thought it was a great fight from Chingiz, of course. Uh, he was doing some cool shit, like meeting fundamentals fundamentals with fundamentals. Uh, he shut down Sidichai's lead hook and his left kick just by good positioning and hand fighting. Anytime that Sidichai would load up for his left kick... He normally is ready to throw the right hook if the left kick isn't there, his opponent starts circling towards it. So Alzab would just, you know, tie up the lead hand, just occupy some space with his, his lead arm, and just like stop him in his tracks from being able to do any counters off of his normal things. He really handled the matchup well, as well as kind of doing his own thing and like finding weird creative routes to land offense. And, you know, spin to win. Always a great strategy. If you can kind of bait a guy that is used to being very standard and composed into a firefight if you just start spinning at him it'll fuck him up especially for a guy like Sidichai who's not used to having to come forward as much as he was in this fight uh he was he was getting walked into spinning back fists a good bit he was getting walked onto uppercuts Alizov just overall overall had very good uh command of distance and he was taking nice angles throughout the whole fight very tight footwork while also still being flashy so um yeah, with, with Chingiz Alizov now set to fight Superbon for the title, um, if Petrosian plans on making a comeback, I'd still love to see that fight with him and Sitachai. Uh, it seems like just an all-time great fight that got away. And I still think both guys are at the point in their career where where it'd still be a, a, a really compelling and high-level contest. So um, I, I know Petrosian's uh, making a comeback fight uh, with his promotion in Italy, um, assuming that he looks good doing that and wants to come back with one championship, I really hope they can put that one together. And then a uh, last thing to mention from this card, uh, despite this card being like actually 10 hours long and having a whole bunch of stuff on it that honestly you don't need to worry about. But yeah, last thing to mention, uh, Nicky Hoskin got knocked out. Uh, Sinsamuk cleaned me. A guy I hadn't heard of out of Thailand, a m- much bigger guy, than you're generally seeing coming out of like the stadium tie circuit. Uh, but he looked really good. Uh, Nicky Holtzkin, another all-time great kickboxer. A little bit long in the tooth, but still been looking very dangerous in a lot of his recent fights. And uh, yeah, Klinmi kind of had his number. Yeah, Holtzkin was like doing cool shit, just trying to return the favor anytime his opponent would land something. Like pretty much without fail, anytime Klinmi would land something, Holskin would try and reply with the exact same move like three or four times just to be like, yeah, yeah, I got it back, asshole. Uh, but then during an exchange in the second, uh, Klinmi just attacked on the perfect timing. He got Holskin throwing and then just popped him right between punches and deaded him. See, like I say, a really solid event from one championship. It's a shame that even when watching these events and seeing all of the high-level fights that they're putting together, it's almost impossible just to get away from all of just the weird shady shit going on with one championship. Like, was it eight fighters missed weight or hydration on this card and then suddenly didn't somehow? I believe so, yeah. And just all of the the marketing and it's a shame that all of that stuff always has to cast a shadow 
on what was genuinely a, a fantastic event. Um, I'm not paid by one championship, but uh, I fucking should be. We're the only podcast that covers this shit earnestly, and also the only podcast that talks about this shit before it happens, because it's like it's really hard to like keep track of any of this shit if you're not constantly looking it up because you do a podcast like I am. But yeah, if you missed these fights over the weekend, uh, go check them out. Yeah, and any of the fights we didn't mention, uh, if you want to look at topology page and just see if a fight's a finish it was a good finish all the finishes on the card were pretty entertaining to watch even if the fight itself wasn't that interesting yeah just don't watch the grappling matches oh do not watch the grappling matches they were fucking awful it was like 24 minutes of the card between two grappling matches that just ended up being draws because if there's no sub it gets a draw so that's why we're not mentioning the grappling matches yeah i talked about uh, all of the kickboxing legends and not andre galval that's what kind of podcast this is Okay, so moving on to UFC Columbus. Curtis Blades versus Chris Dorcas. Curtis Blades uh, knocked out Chris Dorcas early in the second round. Um, didn't even have to wrestle. Curtis Blades has been making a lot of strides with his striking. And uh, really, the big issue with Curtis Blades to take away from that Derek Lewis fight is the way that his striking connects to his wrestling. But it's also easy to forget that for the first like round and a half of that fight, he was easily boxing Derek Lewis up before he shot into that hideous uppercut. And he, you know, maybe could have just won the fight like that. And um, couldn't probably win fights like that against most heavyweights on Chris Dorcas's level. Uh, particularly once they had a few neutral exchanges, it was like Curtis Blades was just like, well, this guy doesn't hit like Derek Lewis or Francis Ngannou. So I can just like kind of vibe do my thing, do jabs and low kicks. Second round, they trade a right hand. Curtis Blades beat him to the punch. That was it. Yeah, it was pretty sick. Uh, good on Curtis Blades for just knocking him out because that fight could have been a lot less interesting than it was. Maybe it would have been efficient for Curtis to just start wrestling immediately. But, I mean, if you don't need to, you're not going to get another opportunity at at the level he's at to fight someone that just isn't a threat to him on the feet, really. Yeah, and you know what's uh, efficient? Uh, knocking someone out early so you don't have to fight five rounds. True. Yeah, and Dawkins, in theory, is like real hard to get on the ground. He has some shit like he's never been on his back in the UFC or something. So they were talking about that a lot in the pre-fight, but... You know, Curtis could have just been like, oh, well, why would I grapple him then? I'll just knock him out. Well, and you always got to take those stats with some context. Um, uh, you know, the, the only person who got to really wrestle offensively against Dorcas was Alexia Linek, who is old. And uh, Curtis Blades, he's the best wrestler at heavyweight. It's not really even close. Yeah, I, I think you would have won faster. If he just wrestled, because he, he might have actually just been able to like pound him out in the first round. But why do that when you can basically get the same thing done and get a highlight reel thing? Like this probably boosted his career a lot more to just fucking dust a guy. Oh yeah, definitely. And 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 you know, Chris Dorcas, he's got some hand speed and can put some combinations together. But he's not the kind of master technician that he would need to be to make up for his lack of physicality in a matchup like this. And He's quick, but he's not a defensive savant. Curtis Blades is a big, powerful dude. Yeah, Dox's boxing is also very one-note. Like, Blades just having longer arms and being able to kind of pick him off with straight shots gave him so much difficulty. 
Like Curtis could also just stay out of range. He was doing good keeping his eyes open in exchanges, which is not something that he's been super consistent about previously. Uh, but, you know, like Curtis Blades just didn't really look worried about Dawkins at all, which is a really good sign. Because he shouldn't have been. Yeah, and good for Curtis. Uh, just getting a couple wins back together after just after suffering one of the most hideous knockouts you'll ever see in a fight that it kind of seemed like he was winning pretty easily. Co-main event, Joanne Wood uh, was submitted by Alexa Grasso. Something that I don't feel like we touched on enough is a thing that can just happen at like, any point in a Joanne Wood fight uh, is that she might just uh, see a grappling opportunity and uh, get submitted. Because uh, her whole MMA development really has just been her getting various degrees of what we call MMA brain. You know, uh, becoming more well-rounded, but actually pushing her advantages less and less. And, you know, the more that she worked on rounding out her skill set and doing strength and conditioning stuff, uh, the more it kind of compromised the things that she was, like, actually good at to begin with. Um, But she still wasn't particularly athletic or good at grappling, so it's just not been a particularly... A productive development for her. This is exactly what you talked about last week. But we also saw all the reasons that we said that this could be a really close fight on the feet because Alexa Grasso being a small outfighter who sets up entries with kicks and feints from long range is actually just a really bad way to fight JoJo because she's like she's way more comfortable in that range, particularly if she's not being pushed back and has a pronounced height and reach advantage. So she was... She was really starting to land some good shots and get into this fight, you know, after being taken down early and getting back to her feet. And then just got back taken in a weird scramble and lost immediately. Be like that. Yeah. She she did a spinning elbow and then just could not help herself from trying to trip her opponent. It's something that's happened in a lot of JoJo fights. If my memory serves me, she actually initiated the grappling scenario that led to her getting submitted by Maya as well. Uh Wood just has the issue of wanting to get offense off in random positions, so she'll try to overplay her hand in a lot of grappling scenarios, and it almost always leads to bad results. It's like her worst flaw by far, because, you know, she's slow and inathletic, but she can't do anything about that. She definitely could do something about the way that she thinks about sequences. Like, she landed a nice spinning elbow, and instead of just running to the fence when her opponent countered it and kind of took the back off of eating a spinning elbow... She was like, oh, I'm going to try and like whip her around and then uh, like trip her to the ground. Then maybe I'll have top position. But Agrasso is wise to that and isn't going to let that happen easily. So she just got the back and then JoJo got submitted pretty much immediately after getting her back taken. Uh, JoJo's not as good of a defensive grappler as she would need to be to try and play that type of style of, of counter wrestling. Just get to the fence and then, you know, frame... Or, or like get a collar tie, just you know, get an underhook, something else other than try and do counter wrestling all the time. Because she is one of the slowest people in the division, and also not physically imposing at all. Alexa Grasso, who's small for the division, had no problem just keeping the back and, and maintaining, like staying tight to JoJo. So it was classic JoJo in some good ways, but more bad ways than good, and it kind of led to her losing the way that she's always been susceptible to losing, and. You know, she got more athletic just by like training more, uh, in like having better strength and conditioning. But it was at a weird timing. Like when you're this old in in your career, she's I believe thirty six, thirty five. 
then it's not like the it's not the right time like that that's a point of age where you just want to be able to maintain yourself physically and just you know keep your skill set going but she needs to make like skill strides still she she needed to get in good shape when she was at like 27 rather than you know in her mid 30s being in good shape because now it's going to fall off physically and there's nothing she can do about it you're just going to fall off at a certain point so the only way she'd be able to sustain herself is if she had really leaned into her skill set in the last few years but she hasn't. So we're seeing the results of that now. She's had a weird training scenario for a while. Uh, her last fight, I believe, she was getting prepared for a wedding during the fight, which is just not ideal. So, yet, yeah, Rip JoJo. Uh, Alexa Grosso looked really good. Wanted to make sure to give her credit. Uh, Grosso did everything she had to do. And even in the parts of the matchup that we expected her, her to have difficulty, she was very composed and kind of didn't shoot herself in the foot in any regards. It could have gone a lot worse for her. Yeah, it was just a style matchup thing. Uh, and, and the fact yeah. that whenever she tried to lead with kicks, you know, JoJo's actually one of the better people in the division at being able to defend and counter at that range. Um, but, but, you know, it was, it was never really an issue. And yeah, Alexa Grasso has looked really good at flyweight. This probably puts her one or two fights off of a title shot. Um, Manon Fioro also had a pretty good win on this card. Probably in a similar spot in the division right now. I think that would be a good fight. And for Joanne Wood, she really might get cut, which is rough because it's easy to you know, look at her current form and see that she's uh, lost four of her last five. Uh, but three of those people immediately got title shots off of beating her and one of them was a complete robbery. So even with her current form, it would be pretty disrespectful to get rid of her. Yeah, despite all of her flaws, she is unironically like a, a top three flyweight or women's flyweight of all time. And that's like not even an exaggeration. She has like good credentials in the division. and She's like a very well-skilled fighter. But her limitations, she's just never really overcome, or it doesn't seem like she knows how to overcome them, or even knows what they are. And then a fight that we just completely forgot to talk about. There was so much shit going on last week, we straight up just miss, missed it. Uh, Brian Barberena versus Matt Brown. A fight that I kind of really wasn't looking forward to once I remembered it was a thing, just because both guys um, been looking pretty old. Matt Brown, of course, you know, he's working with it. He is 41, and he's had the career of an insane action fighter. And, you know, he, he's working with what he's still got left. You know, it's, it's mainly just he he gets tired and he doesn't have the ridiculous chin that he used to. But for Brian Barberena, it's just a really unfortunate series of circumstances where he's only 32, but just as you know, a series of life-altering wars and and really unfortunate injuries and surgeries have, have really seemed to have compromised him at a surprisingly early point in his career. I mean, he's just never really looked the same since he came back after that back surgery, which was not longer after having a career-best performance in which he nearly beat Vicente Luke and then was viciously knocked out in the last 10 seconds because, you know, be like that against Vicente Luke. Uh, but, you know, this was a great fight. Both guys kind of met in the middle at the at the perfect point of both of their shotness to where they could still have a great fight where they basically look like their old selves. 
you know, I don't know what there really is to say about it. It was insane back and forth brawl. All the classic Matt Brown and Brian Barberena shit. Matt Brown hitting cool foot sweeps and sneaky clinch offense and big body kicks. Brian Barberena being the sneaky crafty dog that he is, taking a high pace fight to Matt Brown, but making adjustments, working around his guard and finding good counters, competing in the clinch. The split decision went to Brian Barberena. I didn't really have a problem with the decision, but would have been nice to see it to go to Matt Brown uh, for a fight at this point in his career with a hometown crowd. Also, fuck the Ohio crowd for Brian, for booing Brian Barberena. He's not the judges, and he fought his ass off. Yeah, and it's the type of fight that doesn't lend itself great to analysis, but you get to see just like what each guy does, and you get to see a lot of it because they are pretty much constantly going at it the entire fight. Uh, so yeah, and the the kind of matchup that just would have been good no matter no matter what point in their career they fought. Yeah, if anyone listening to this hasn't watched it, go watch it. You will not regret it. And uh, Kakara France, in some somewhat of an upset, uh, defeated Askar Askarov by unanimous decision. I thought this was a pretty good performance. Yeah, Superman punches are OP. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that was the adjustment. The first round. Uh, was kind of exactly what we were expecting. Once Askar Askarov was able to get a takedown, he was able to get a good bit of the round on top. But something that's interesting that we brought up but kind of didn't key into how it affected this matchup is Askar Askarov has built a lot of his grappling game about, like, you know, countering the flyweight scrambling meta and just being a a positional lockdown grappler. And Kaikara France is uh, different to most flyweights in that he just wants to get back to his feet and get back to range. You know, he he's not going to take being taken down as an opportunity to try some shit. And yeah, as the as the fight went on, he was able to stuff the takedowns and started just kind of picking Askarov apart. There was a point that he realized that he if he just like threw something away off of his right hand and then threw something with his left hand, it would land clean like literally every time and then he could just like back Askarov. Askarov off with uh, jab feints and uh, fucked him up pretty good against the cage uh, with, with a big flurry towards the end of the second <clears throat> and seemed to just have Askarov really tentative about uh, closing distance in the third and kind of just had his way with him. Yeah, the first round, he, he had to kind of drop that round because Askarov got the back and it was just kind of a position where Kai had to wait out the round. And then the second he got back to his feet in the second round, when the round started, he, he really started doing well. Uh, like the Superman punch, we joke about it, but it was like kind of a genius adjustment because it was one working for landing offense, and two, it was kind of stifling Askarov's ability to shoot for takedowns because he was worried he was going to step into a switch knee. I assume because it does kind of look like the setup for a switch knee to counter someone shooting a takedown. It also puts your hips in a weird position where it's kind of under you, so if you dive at them, they're going to be like kind of diving into being sprawled on. It, it just like complicates Askarov's takedown selection a lot of the time. So, you know, pretty pretty good adjustment on his end. Uh, he was doing good shit, good shit whenever he got his opponent to the fence. Like Askarov being on the fence isn't very good. Like his defense is very porous. And if you can put more than two or three shots together at a time, he's going to get hit by a good majority of them. So yeah, it was it was like well disciplined by Car France. And Askarov didn't look bad, I don't think. It's just uh 
it's like weird for him if Kai makes those type of adjustments where it, it shifts from being a really good matchup to being a pretty rough one. Yeah, in a way that I didn't really see coming and uh, was was pretty impressed by Kai Kara France, even if it wasn't, you know, the most exciting fight to watch. But, you know, probably uh, lines Kai Kara France up for a title shot, depending on what happens with Figueredo Moreno 4. I mean, we've seen... KKF fight Moreno before. Uh, you know, it wasn't that close, but it was a good scrap. It'd be cool to see it again at this point with the with the improvements that both guys have made. Um, but if you know, if they're gonna have to take fights again, um, I guess you gotta do Carcara France versus uh Alexandre Pantoja. Neil Magny defeated Max Griffin by his split decision. Um <clears throat> I think a lot of us watching on the night saw that it might have been a little bit of a robbery, but we were all we were also totally down with it because Neil Magny fucking rocks. Um, but it was also one of those things where because Max Griffin, um, when you have someone getting dropped that hard in the first round and then the second two rounds are, are closer, just the, the the way you remember that fight is. is you know, le- leans towards the, the guy who, who was getting dropped losing. But having rewatched it, I thought this was a totally justified decision for Magny. And, you know, it was kind of classic Max Griffin. Even with the improvements that he has made over his last few fights, he's still that guy who can come in with a few ideas specifically tailored to his opponent. They're probably going to work pretty hard early. Um, but if his opponent can make adjustments, then, you know, Max Griffin, he's not going to come up with new ideas in the cage. And we saw that. And, you know, if, um, if you hurt Neil Magny, but you don't instantly wipe him out like most people who hurt Neil Magny badly do, you know, there is a dog in Neil Magny that you don't want to bring out. You know, the, the second round was was kind of him just jabbing more actively, you know, working behind his reach more. But in the third round, to Max Griffin's credit, he didn't even uh, walk into a bunch of clinches with Neil Magny. Neil Magny actually aggressively pursued clinch offense and he kind of fucked Max Griffin up in the third round. Was getting him with some hard elbows in the clinch, but also uh, just at one point was just like riding from the back for a long time, controlling the wrists and just getting shots in from weird angles that only people with 90-inch arms like Neil Magny can actually get power on. And then um, right at the end of the third round, Neil Magny fucking tombstone pile-drivered Max Griffin. Like, I'm not even joking. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it was legal. But also, Max Griffin was holding on to the legs, so it was kind of his fault, so maybe that makes it legal. I don't know. But that makes that like a 10-6 round for Neil Magny in my book. Yeah, on rewatch, it it felt like very clear for Magny, but initially it was, it was kind of weird. And also... Uh, worth noting, almost everyone watching was very tired from having stayed up for the one card and ha- being on minimal sleep. So our initial impressions weren't great. Yeah, I almost, I, I barely remembered like half of this card until we were re-watching it. Because that, that entire day was just a blur of like 16 hours of fights. Yeah, Neil Magny was doing really cool things with his range. I mean, he always tries to, but sometimes the matchup doesn't afford him the opportunities to. But he was landing like cool hooks at long ranges that Max Griffin's just not prepared to be taking shots from. Uh, he can punch around your arms real easy if he has the read for what shots to go for. His jab looked pretty good after the 
after he got knocked down. He got dropped and then just really started putting it to him with a jab, which, you know, you want to see for a guy with 80-inch reach. Yeah, not, not a decent win for Neil Magny. Like He's just always going to hang around this spot of the division. But at this point, I don't know, you can give him a fight with, like, Stephen Thompson. That'd be fun. Vyacheslav Borshev had his prospect loss. We said this could have been too much too soon, and it kind of was. Mark Chikese is, uh, he's he's had a bit of a rough run, but he's fought a lot of very good fighters, and he's very experienced, and he's very athletic, and just just pretty well-rounded. And uh, it seemed like he knew exactly what he needed to do in this fight. You know, not only was he just trying to eke out a win, because it's been a bit of a, uh, a rough run for him, uh, but also Vyacheslav just um, loves being taken down. He's just still really developing his game in that area. And uh, you saw that he had a lot of good ideas, but just like never knew how to follow up on it. Like like he was always trying like cool scramble shit that he's, that he's obviously done uh, in the gym at Alpha Male, but just never knew like what the next step was. Like he'd do like a Granby roll, but then still just be stuck with his back taken. And, you know, the more he got taken down, the more tentative. He just looked on the feet. He got a couple of good combinations off early, but uh, Mark Casey's durable as shit. You got you got to catch even if you catch him with something big, you're probably going to have to finish him with a submission. So yeah, it was a prospect loss. I don't really think it takes too much away from Borshev and just um, give him a matchup with someone who's going to bang with him. Yeah, the the fight was a good learning experience for Borshev. I'm like sure of it. I'm sure he's going to come back better. But it's also a good uh, learning experience or example for any fans who just get like super into a prospect. Like we've been watching MMA long enough to know that there was a really good chance that he just got wrestled. But there was people that were like, "Oh yeah, Borshev's just gonna kill him. He's the he's the big striker guy now." I mean, I was like, "Borshev's just gonna kill him. He's the big striker guy now." I mean, we were initially, and then we were like, "Ah, Jacasey might wrestle him." <laughs> and then I mean, you know, we we kind of had like the downer opinion on that fight to be like oh you know the wrestling might happen but then it just happened so we're like vindicated for it but Jacasey looked good uh, it's, it's like the strongest guy that's ever grappled with Borshev which is a huge factor in it Borshev's used to having to scramble with guys that are maybe worse athletes than him most of the time or almost definitely worse athletes in some regards than him whereas Jacasey's just an all around really good athlete and it's hard as fuck to attrition him because his body is rock hard he is as jacked as he looks, and he can take a body shot like it's no one's business. So, like, you, you, it's really just tough to wear him out, and he can maintain the pace of wrestling someone that's not offering that much resistance for five rounds, probably. Yeah, and so, something funny that you pointed out about uh, Borshev uh, that you actually noticed when watching one of his uh, post-fight celebration dances is that, like, when he's doing like a move, he looks really smooth and athletic. And when he's doing like the moves in between the moves, he looks really awkward and clunky and like he's loading up. And that kind of is the that kind of fits in with how I just described his scrambling as well. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, I noticed it watching his post fight celebration for his UFC debut, where he did his cool little dance and he looked athletic as fuck. Then he stood up, looked a bit like an old man. He did like a really slow wind up into a, a spin dance. I don't know the name of the move, uh, but like he just did like a cool spin. But the load up looked awful and the spin looked just fine. So it, it's 
it's something that you know it's a little esoteric, but it, it kind of like it makes sense watching his fights because he'll do like a really nice combination and then get cracked real hard on a reset and then move his head out of the way perfectly and it'll look really nice and then he'll get cracked you know between def- going through defense and offense. And then sometimes he has like defensive looks that work really well into his offense, but not always. Like he he's still he's in he's still new to MMA. You know, like we're we're gonna see him developing for a long time, I'm sure. Sarah McMahon uh, easily defeated Carol Hosa much the same way. I was funny. We barely talked about this fight. I was kind of just like, yeah, Carol Hosa. People think she's cool, and you were like, yeah, but Sarah McMahon. And that was the fight. Yeah, I, I cannot see an old fighter that does wrestling that's just had a really storied career of ups and downs and not think, oh, this person's going to fuck up that prospect that's untested. Every division has a clay guida. Every division has a clay guida. If I see Sarah McMahon in a fight with someone that I do not know as like a, a well-tested grappler or striker, then I'm going to assume she's going to like beat the fuck out of them. Like She's a good wrestler. She's been fighting for so long. Like, just for example, she got like an Olympic wrestling silver medal, I believe, in 2004. And I was three years old then. So she's been wrestling longer than I've been alive. Like, I'm going to pick her in, in matchups like this. I mean, there's diminishing returns on that as well, you know. You know, John Wayne Parr's been doing Muay Thai longer than you've been alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but he, you know, the, that's striking, you know. Wrestlers just keep that shit for so long, <laughs> and I don't. I don't think Sarah McMahon's going to run into uh, like that level of shotness until she's in her fifties. Chris Gutierrez knocked out Bakary Dinar with a spinning back fist. That was pretty cool. Yeah, he, he was kind of getting tuned up for a while, and then on the back foot, he just kind of made the read after uh, Dinar had done something in the previous round. In the previous round, uh, Dana like took the back off of Gutierrez going for a spin, and it was really nice. It was, it was smart, and we were mentioning it. And then, like as we were watching live, and then in the next round, Gutierrez just took a little sidestep and adjusted the angle that he spun at, and kind of spun at a slightly different timing, and pretty much tricked his opponent into running right into the forearm. And he hit with like the hard part of the forearm that if you're not going to hit with the elbow or uh, back of the fist, or like ha- if you do a spinning hand fist. It's like the best place you can land if you're just trying to like get something to land. It's a very sharp part of your elbow. Cracked him real bad, and then you just finish him, with, finish him off the ground and pound. Yeah, Chris Gutierrez on a pretty good little run. Hasn't lost in a while, and he's beaten some okay guys on you know the outskirts of the bantamweight division. Then you can start putting him in there with I don't know someone like a Timur Valiev, Aliashkev Kizriev. There's another. Cool Dagestan prospect. Does all the Dagestan wrestling stuff, but he's like uh, kind of chunky. He's like a five foot eight middleweight, so he looks kind of funny when he does it. So that's cool. Um, Manon Fioro defeats Jennifer Meyer by unanimous decision. A somewhat lackluster performance, if I'm being honest. I think Manon Fioro, the more she's stepped up against a higher level of either athleticism or just like ranking, it seems like she's been playing a much more tentative kind of outfighting performance with, you know, just like straight kicks and check hooks. That was mostly what this was. It's kind of disappointing because she looked like way more aggressive about setting up like creative combinations in the first couple of fights. 
and got a couple of cool finishes that way. And yeah, she's been fighting better people than that, but I, I don't see any reason why she still couldn't be running that kind of game and you know, winning these fights more clearly and being more likely to get finishes. Um, you know, this, this is a fine win for her. Uh, had a couple of rough spots, but stayed composed and consistent. And yeah, like I said earlier, I think I'd like to see her fight Alexa Grasso now. And winner of that is not far off of a title shot. Yeah, and Maya needs to fight down. She got a win over JoJo as JoJo was on the downswing, and then it just kind of boosted her career a bit more than it should have. Not to say she's not a good fighter. She's definitely a good fighter, but she's not top five, I don't think. I think she should hang around the top six to 10, six to 15, and just kind of see if she can put some wins together before they really like try and give her even matchups again. Yeah, and uh, then the other two fights weren't that interesting. I'm not going to talk about them because this episode's really probably really long as well. You can go check them out if, you, if you're that interested. So yeah, that's it from us for this week. Um, we've actually got a week off of the UFC this this week and there's not really anything going on that merits an entire episode. Uh, attention, Nasakawa has a fight and rise, so there's something to look out for. But... um. Yeah, we're going to be taking a week off for the first time since the beginning of the podcast. So, yeah, if you enjoyed this and all the other stuff that the Fight Site puts out, please consider supporting them on Patreon. Um, just a pledge of $3 gets access to a huge library of really high-quality analytical fight content, and then $5 gains access to the Discord server where we have a great community with really cool people from a huge variety of backgrounds of different combat sports and stuff, really interesting to talk to. And we uh, regularly host fight night watch parties, which are a ton of fun. We'll even have random watch parties in the week where we'll just get together, watch some fucking Muay Thai from the 80s or some shit like that. It's good fun. You should check it out and come hang out. Yeah, any patrons who are just on the Patreon, the Discord is where the party's at. You want to go there. Absolutely. It's only $2 more and it's like infinitely more content because you still get all the stuff you're already getting and then you get to talk to staff. Many of the staff are very active in the chat. There's also memes if you like memes. It's not super serious a lot of the time. We kind of just fuck around. It's just like it's a fun place to hang out. There's a channel dedicated just for this podcast, which is mostly shit posting and uh, two or three Discord members giving us shit about our picks. So if you want to do that, then then come hang out. This has been the Forbidden Technique Podcast. We'll catch you guys later. Peace. Later. That should be okay. Don't you mean that's Shinyai okay? I don't know why. I just like felt that one. I had to say it.